of the great things about coming to the United States from another part of the world, my home country, you know, is New Zealand. So I have a lot in common with Canadians. We're both members of the British Commonwealth. We're familiar with God Save the Queen and, and all that. One of the fascinating things about coming to live in the country in which I'm now resident is history. Americans, of course, like many or most people, are very proud of their history. And they've really made a legend about what's become one of the most famous messages in history. And what's interesting about it is that it probably wasn't even said, but history likes a good story. American history loves good stories, even if they're not entirely true. Now, if it's true, then things happen something like this, at least according to Henry Wadsworth Longfellow who wrote these words more than a hundred years after the fact. Based on reality, not everything is true, but something like this happened. He wrote, Listen, my children, and you shall hear of the midnight ride of Paul Revere. On the 18th of April in 75, hardly a man is now alive who remembers that famous day and year. He said to his friend, If the British march by land or sea from the town tonight... Hang a lantern aloft in the belfry arch of the North Church Tower as a signal light. One if by land and two if by sea. And I on the opposite shore will be. Wadsworth got a few things wrong in that epic poem. But historical accuracy was not his likely objective. More likely he was trying to capture the spirit, the excitement of it all. And he certainly succeeded in doing that. On April 18, 1775, 700 British soldiers gathered on Boston Common and boarded ships to go and raid Concord. Their intent was to destroy Patriot military stores, weapons that had been hidden there. Revere rode through present-day Somerville, Medford, and Arlington in Massachusetts, warning Patriots along the way. That familiar phrase, so many people are familiar with it, the British are coming. Well, historians are unanimous. Revere never said it. But whatever the exact wording, Revere's message got through. It was effective. It had the desired effect. The patriots were ready and a revolution began. If you have a message, it's important the message is clear. And it's important the message is accurate. Paul Revere went with a stunning message. But think about what that message really was. In essence, he said, there is real trouble coming. You are not secure. We are imperiled. Some of us may die. There is an enemy approaching. And so what was the response? The response was one of steadfast resistance and heroic victory. Because the message of what was bad news was a message that aroused them to action. It prepared them for difficult times. You can imagine, can't you, if Revere had ridden through Massachusetts announcing that all was well, heralding peace and safety. There may well have been no American Revolution. And Americans would be looking forward to celebrating Queen's Birthday weekend in early June every year. Let me read to you one of the most misunderstood verses in the Bible. It's a beautiful verse. Some have called it the New John 3.16. It's everywhere now. Someone very kindly gave me a drinking mug, a, a, what, no, a peppermint tea mug recently. There's nothing like peppermint tea. And it had this verse emblazoned on it. I love the verse. You do too. So we read it in Jeremiah 29, 11. I know the thoughts I have towards you, 
saith the Lord. And what does he go on to say? Thoughts of peace and not of evil. Thoughts to give, depending on the version, an expected end or thoughts to give you a hope and a future. Beautiful. But what's the context of that verse? Jeremiah had been telling God's people they were going into Babylonian captivity. The 10 northern tribes had been carried away in 721 BC. This was around 600 BC, give or take. For more than 100 years, only Judah and Benjamin had existed. And for years, Jeremiah had been telling the people that they were going into captivity. And why was that? It was because of their extreme wickedness. Did people want to accept Jeremiah's message? No, they did not. Now, if you turn to the previous chapter, there's, there's a voice. It's that of Hannah, the son of Azur. I must go there myself. Jeremiah chapter 28, and we shall pick it up where? In verse 2. He says, did I say Hannah? Hananiah. Hananiah, the son of Azur, the prophet. He said, thus speaks the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, saying, I have broken the yoke of the king of Babylon. Within two full years will I bring again into this place all the vessels of the Lord's house that Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, took away from this place and carried them to Babylon. And I will bring again to this place Jeconiah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, with all the captives of Judah that went into Babylon, saith the Lord. For I will break the yoke of the king of Babylon. This is Hananiah's message. Verse 15. Then said the prophet Jeremiah unto Hananiah the prophet, Hear now, Hananiah, the Lord hath not sent thee, but you make this people to trust in a lie. Therefore thus saith the Lord, Behold, I will cast you from off the face of the earth. This year you shall die, because you have taught rebellion against the Lord. So Hananiah the prophet died the same year, In the seventh month. This was a constant battle for Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 27 and verse 15. Jeremiah appeals to the king. I have not sent them, saith the Lord. Yet they prophesy a lie in my name. In chapter 26, they had plotted to murder Jeremiah to silence his voice. A plot to murder the man. Jeremiah chapter 23, verse 1. Woe to the pastors that scatter my flock. Jeremiah 23, 21. I have not sent these prophets, yet they ran. I have not spoken to them, yet they prophesy. I wonder where we see a parallel today. I'll give you one. And I hope you don't think I'm being unkind. All over evangelical Christianity, there is a myth being promoted that before the return of Jesus, the faithful ones will be raptured out and taken to heaven before the time of trouble takes place. This is a message of peace and safety, if ever there was one. It's not going to happen that way. The Bible makes zero mention of it. Yet the falsehood was spread as though it was the gospel truth. People are being set up for the shock of a lifetime. It is a conspiracy on the part of the enemy of souls to leave people unprepared for what is coming upon the earth. And it's part of a wider scheme to divert the attention of people away from the great matters of the great controversy. 
the focus on the law of God as Satan endeavors to lead the world into disobedience. The same ministers of the gospel who claim that it isn't important for people to keep the commandments of God perpetuate other mistruths as well. Now, of course, there's some truth to that. Uh, you can be, you can come into a saving relationship without knowing anything, with God, that is, without knowing anything about the commandments of God. You can. You can claim Jesus as your Lord and Savior and yield your heart. But what happens then is you're going to grow, aren't you? Many mistruths have tendrils, or yeah, many mistruths have tendrils wrapped around the truth. It's important that God's message gets through. President Ronald Reagan stood before the Brandenburg Gate in Berlin, Germany in June of 1987. It was June 12. Even though the speech didn't get a lot of attention at the time, a line from that speech lives on today. President Reagan famously said, addressing the Soviet premier, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Well, I want to look with you in the Bible at a story of a man who had a message and didn't share it. It's a fascinating story, almost a little perplexing. It seems like our man's issue was very obvious, like the solution he needed was right there, which is the point exactly. 2 Samuel chapter 18, verse 1 says, And David numbered the people that were with him, and set captains of thousands and captains of hundreds over them. If you don't know where we've landed, you know it's serious. King David had just readied his men for war. And this was such a decisive battle that David's men said to him, You shall not go forth. You're worth 10,000 of us. Therefore, now it's better that you sustain us from out of the city. Don't come. We cannot afford to lose you. Now we understand what the story is all about. The king commanded Joab and Abishai and Ittai, saying, Deal gently for my sake with the young man, even with Absalom. And all the people heard when the king gave all the captain's charge concerning Absalom. What an unfathomably difficult situation. King David is sending his men off to war to put down the rebellion led by his own son. And things went badly for Absalom. There was there a great slaughter that day of 20,000 men. For the battle was there scattered over the face of all the country. And the wood devoured more people that day than the sword devoured. And you know how the story ends. Absalom gets caught up in an oak tree as he rode under it. And 10 young men came and killed him. But now the delicate part. David wasn't there. He was back in Mahanaim. So someone would have to take him the news. This is verse 19. Then said Ahimeaz, the son of Zadok, Let me now run and bear the king tidings, how that the Lord hath avenged him of his enemies. Zadok was the priest. Ahimeaz, his son, was well known to David. Ahimeaz wanted to go and inform the king of this sad news. But Joab wouldn't let him and instead commissioned a Cushite, a man from Northeast Africa, quite possibly Ethiopia. The man ran. But Ahimeaz was insistent. While this fellow was running off to tell David, Ahimeaz, the son of Zadok, said once more to Joab, but whatever happens, please let me also run after the Cushite. And Joab said, why would you run, my son, since you will have no reward for going? 
But whatever happens, he said, I will run. And so he said, run. Then Ahimeaz ran by way of the plain and passed up the Cushite. You can imagine the reticence on the part of the king's man right there. Why do you want to go? This is a thankless task. And you know the fellow. You you, you don't want to complicate your relationship with him by entering into this moment and taking him the worst news he could possibly get. But off he went. Ahimeaz ran, and he ran well. He ran fast. A watchman in Mahanaim saw him approaching. And the watchman said, Me thinketh the running of the foremost is like the running of Ahimeaz, the son of Zadok. And the king said, He's a good man. And he comes with good tidings. He's a good fellow. He's got good news for me. And the big moment came. He arrived and he said, Blessed be the Lord thy God, which hath delivered up the man that lifted, or the men that lifted up their hand against my Lord the king. Let me read that again and see if you can understand what it means. Blessed be the Lord my God, which has delivered up the men that lifted up their hand against my Lord the king. Didn't really mean anything, did it? The king wanted to know what had happened. And so he asked, is the young man Absalom safe? Ahimeaz answered, when Joab sent the king's servant and me, your servant, I saw a great tumult, but I knew not what it was. Imagine this. The big question. Ahimeaz had one job. Take the message to the king. Tell him what happened. And he knew what had happened. But instead of doing his duty, Ahimeaz prevaricated. Now, the word prevaricate comes from the Latin varicari, meaning to straddle. Ahimeaz prevaricated, which means he, he stayed on the fence. He straddled the fence when the moment demanded that he take a position. And keep in mind, he wasn't being asked to be ugly. No one was suggesting he'd be obnoxious or offensive. He was simply being asked to share the facts. He didn't need to provide commentary or analysis, just facts. What happened? And yet when Ahimeas had the opportunity to share a direct answer, he wilted. Does this ring a bell for you? Down here in the final days of Earth's history... God has commissioned his people to share a message. No invective needed, no malice required, no slurring or slighting. Just share the report, God says. Nearly 200 years ago, a revival broke out in budding North America. A Baptist minister had been studying his Bible. He came to the conclusion Jesus was going to return to the earth in 1843. But William Miller was wrong. Jesus didn't come back. Figured out he was off by a year. They recalculated or recalibrated. 1844. But Jesus still didn't come back. Many of the believers that had followed William Miller's teachings gave up on the hope of Jesus' return. Many slunk back to their churches. Some gave up faith in God or in Jesus altogether. But God was definitely not done with his people. And he wasn't done with the return of Jesus. The believers found comfort in the book of Habakkuk chapter 2. For the vision is yet for an appointed time, but at the end it shall speak and not lie. Though it tarry, wait for it, because it will surely come. It will not tarry. The just shall live by his faith. They believed God was telling them that there was more ahead. They'd make sense out of their disappointment. Well, John had seen this almost 2,000 years ahead of time. He wrote about it in Revelation chapter 10. I went to the angel and said to him, 
Give me the little book. And he said to me, take it and eat it up and it shall make your belly bitter, but it will be in your mouth sweet as honey. I took the little book out of the angel's hand and ate it up. It was in my mouth sweet as honey, but as soon as I'd eaten it, my belly was bitter. And he said to me, you must prophesy again before many peoples and nations and tongues and kings. You must prophesy again. You have a message to share. You must say what there is to be said. You've got something that has to be shared. We find that message in Revelation chapter 14. And I saw another angel fly in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach unto them that dwell on the earth and to every nation and kindred and tongue and people, saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to Him, for the hour of His judgment has come. And worship Him that made heaven and earth and the sea and the fountains of waters. Now we know something about that. An angel, a messenger, visible to all, heard by all. A message that goes around the world. Fear God and give glory to Him. Live a life of commitment to and dependence on God. It's judgment time, which means it isn't time to be taking God lightly. It's not time to be fooling around with faith, to be lackadaisical about God. Judgment time. And worship Him that made heaven and earth. What's that? That's a direct quote from the Sabbath commandment. That's God reminding us, There is a commandment that's not being kept. The law is being transgressed. People are living, knowingly or otherwise, in opposition to God. There followed another angel saying, Babylon has fallen, has fallen, that great city, because she made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. Babylon, that system of false religion, headed by the mother church, the great apostasy, fallen. God says there's no future with religious falsehood. There's no future in unbiblical tradition, teachings that fall foul of the leading of the Holy Spirit. Babylon, we are told, fallen. And then there's the message of the mark of the beast. Can you imagine anything so serious? Anyone who receives the mark of the beast cannot be saved. That's beyond solemn. It's not only life and death, it's spiritual life and death. It's eternal life and death. And the world has to know. Ladies and gentlemen, we have a message to share. Ahimeaz had a message and dropped the ball. He stood by mutely, shuffling his feet, staring at the ground, while the Cushite simply told the king what he needed to know. Ahimeaz ran well. He looked good. Anyone watching him would have spoken positively about his athletic ability, about his flowing stride, about his stamina. But athleticism was not what this was about. He was tasked with sharing a message. Friend, the temptation is sometimes to major in the minors. We sometimes want to focus on, ah, what? Let's pick an example. Music. We want to have the best musicians and perform the most popular music as if music is what the church was raised up for. You know full well, no one's suggesting we're to have good music. The excellenter, the betterer. But if we're majoring in the music and minoring in the message, we've got it upside down. We want to have programs for this and that. We want that. They're good, or at least they can be good. But if the message is missing, or is irrelevant, or is being watered down, who's being helped? Nobody, that's who. You need to know, there's a war going on at the moment. Everybody needs to know. The great controversy, we call it. And the devil knows that if he can eat the heart out of the message, he's eaten the heart out of the church. But we are now at the time when higher criticism has stretched the Bible to breaking point. So-called scholars will cast doubt on the Scriptures denying the virgin birth, denying miracles Jesus performed, denying creation happened, 
We can't have anything to do with ideas like that in God's remnant church. We simply cannot. We have a message to share, one that builds faith in the scriptures, one that results in a a strong proclamation of God's end time message. We've been called to proclaim the three angels' messages graciously, kindly. Why would we not? Someone once said that the third angel's message is the message of justification by faith. So we have a soul-saving, Christ-exalting message. We believe prophecy is fulfilling. We believe the second coming is imminent. We believe the Antichrist is working in the world. We believe there's a remnant. We believe Jesus is our high priest in the most holy place in the heavenly sanctuary. We believe the earth was created recently in six literal days and that on the seventh day God rested. We believe it. I know there are people who don't. I don't want you to go to war with them. Not at all. But friend of God, we must stand on the word of God, not somebody's interpretation of the word of God that goes contrary to the plain, thus saith the Lord. I want to encourage you to know what you believe. There's a reason people get sideways on certain subjects. Get confused about the Trinity and then leave the church. Get confused about prophecy and end up with some strange interpretations that we have never held before. The reason is because so many people simply don't know what they believe. So when somebody comes along with an off-base interpretation, they get swept away. I was new in a certain church preaching every Sabbath. People were very positive, as people usually are. After six weeks or so, a church member approached me and he said, Do you realize that what you are preaching is completely the opposite of what your predecessor preached? I thought, have mercy. The same people who said amen to me said amen to him. And you're telling me two different messages. Seems very few people could tell the difference. You've got to be able to tell the difference between what's real and what isn't. I spoke with an old friend recently. He asked me about a certain character. I said, I don't know much about what that person teaches. He said, oh, I can't see anything wrong with it. I told him again, I don't know. But I did tell him that anyone who gets kicked out of a church is probably someone you want to be leery of. But he was unperturbed, made no difference to him. Controversial guy, had been kicked out of the church. I don't see a problem with it. Oh, friend, open your eyes. Listen, you want to be careful about what you listen to, who you listen to. When someone makes a nitwit prediction and it fails, as it would, it's time for you to fold up your tent and move on. Why we give people a free pass when they deviate from the message, when they leave the platform? I can't understand it. And here's part of the problem. People want an exciting message. They want something new, like the people Paul encountered in Athens who spent their time and nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new thing. Let me share with you a message that's extremely exciting. There is a God in heaven. Come on and say amen. God loves you. Would you say amen out there? Jesus, the Son of God, came to this world to die for you. Your sins may be forgiven. Come on now. This is life-changing stuff. You may receive a new heart from God. All your guilt can be gone. You can live a completely new life. God can change you. Jesus is your high priest. He is in the heavenly sanctuary right now. Now, some people are going to hear that and say, Oh, come on, Bradshaw. Let's get beyond this introductory stuff. But I want to tell you something. Sanctification isn't introductory. And the same people who don't want to hear the gospel are the very ones with cold hearts. But let's go on with the message. Jesus is coming back soon. When he returns, there'll be a group of people ready to meet him and go to heaven. You can be among that group. Oh, yes, you can. Doesn't matter to me how many times you've been disappointed or disappointed others. 
God got me and you together today so I could tell you that you can be among the saved through faith in Jesus. God is looking for a group of people who are willing to surrender to his will. God is looking for a group of people who are willing to be obedient. If you love God, you will keep his commandments. I mean, as one follows the other, not because you're trying to prove anything to God. Babylon has fallen. That's the message too. God does not want you to receive the mark of the beast. God's remnant will keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. If you can't get excited about that, you need a check for a pulse. It's true we're living in a challenging age. Society as a whole doesn't have an appetite for truth like, truth like it used to. The truth now is that truth is what you make it. So people will argue now about things that not long ago weren't up for debate. But here's where this gets critical for us as believers in Jesus. Why this matters is because of at least two reasons. One, Jesus told us to tell others, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's important because Jesus said so. It was him who said, You must prophesy again. So we share Jesus because he told us that we should. Now second, we want to share the message of salvation because there are people in the world who are going to die lost. Eternity is a better deal. And love and compassion says we have to do something to share the good news with others. We have to. If I'm going to heaven, I want you to know and I want you to go. You know, I saw I saw gas today, 25 cents cheaper than where I'd ordinarily buy it. My first impulse was, i got to tell the people at the office. That's 25 cents a gallon of gas. I'll tell you. I want you to save money. This is more important. Those who love God and care for others are motivated to see that others experience the very best. So we want to tell them. Two questions. Number one, what's the best way to tell them? Number two, how do you get people to listen? Well, I'm going to answer the first question first. Best way to tell them? I know the answer. But I say this. Any way is better than no way. There are a thousand ways to share Jesus with someone. Let me add this. And, and this is, in my thinking, very important. You want to share Jesus by handing out bottles of water, by doing health screenings, by baking bread, by handing out tracts, all good. As long as somehow you are connecting people to Christ and his truth, developing a relationship so you can bring them along. So you think the best way to catch fish is with a lure. Someone else thinks crickets. Someone else has worms. I don't really care. But I can tell you it doesn't matter what bait you use if you don't have a hook. Let's have a hook. If all you want to do is keep, give people vegan food, for example, all you're ensuring is that there'll be plenty of healthy people in hell. If all you want to do is give blankets to folks who don't have them, you'll have warm, lost people. And what good is that? You need a hook, and the hook is Jesus. So whatever you do, and we must do something, then you want to be praying God gives you the opportunity to bring people around. You're going to want to lead them to study the Bible, to attend church, to watch a program, to go to a small group meeting with you. Might not happen after just one meeting, but you're building up to that, working up to that. That's the point. Second question. How do you get people to listen? Same answer as the first question. We have not been called to indoctrinate people, but to share Jesus with people. You want to get involved in someone's life, make a difference in someone's experience. Christians have to get a little dirt under their fingernails. You know, in my hometown, a group of people found out that there were some kids going to school hungry. It's in the town I grew up. They happened to live about a, less than a quarter of a mile from the house in which I grew up in. They thought, that can't be. We've got to do something about the hungry kids. 
So these individuals started making sandwiches and delivering them to a school in town. The school administrators were grateful and a little convicted because, not convicted, Freudian slip. And the school administrators were a little conflicted because the people making and providing the sandwiches for free to hungry children were gang members who lived on the margins of society. These were people with criminal records. They were violent, some of them. They'd spent time in prison, but they saw a need and met it. Who could stand by while children were going to school without having eaten in the morning and had no lunch? No wonder kids can't learn and have disciplinary issues. The gang leader said, we are not exactly the pillars of society. He said, really, we're just not good people. He meant it. If you met them, you might even agree. But look at what they're doing. They sure had good hearts. Now they're delivering food to 25 schools. They're paying for it all themselves. No funding. You can't argue with that. People are looking at what the gang is doing. They're saying, these are decent people. They're selfless. And you wonder, where was the church? Why weren't the churches in town doing this? Isn't this the sort of thing God's people could do? Of course it is. Imagine if the church was providing that service. Who could argue with that church? It wouldn't be a matter of theology then other than the theology that says, by this shall all men know that you are my disciples. If you have love one for another. My friend, God has given us a message. He's given us the three angels messages, which is a message of justification by faith, salvation through Jesus. There are lots of particulars and specifics in that message. And we share them appropriately and at the right time in as much as they can help a person know Jesus better. Don't be afraid of the message. It's God's message. Don't be a Himeas. You run and maybe you look good. Wow, look at this guy running. I can tell you is by the way she runs. And what do we do with the word of God? Watch me sing. Listen to me preach. Admire my organizational abilities at the church. Look at me because I'm a leader of in some level. No, hold on. Those things aren't important. What's important is sharing Jesus. Sharing Jesus. We've been called to share Jesus. If you want joy for your journey, experience the joy that comes from sharing Jesus. That's where joy is. Pray and ask God, Lord, can you give me someone to share Jesus with? Carry some tracts and some books and some cards to give out. Remember to point people to itiswritten.tv or some other media outlet. Bring people to church. Invite them to the Christmas program. Tell them about the health program. Have them join with you and connect. The program about prayer uh, that we're doing in August, starting August 9. Let people know. Tell somebody about this. Tell somebody about your friend Jesus. God gave us the word of God to share. We want to share the word of God. And as we do, as we do, miracles will happen. As we do, miracles of grace will take place. I don't have time, but if I did, I would tell you, the miracle stories of people who heard the message in evangelistic series, even our online evangelistic series that we've held at It Is Written over the past year plus, numerous online evangelistic series. They heard the word, they were encouraged, they yielded their life to Jesus. He made them new. Friend, there's power in the word. 
We've been called, raised up by God to share what's written in this book, to share Jesus with power. Can we pray together that God would give us grace to do that? Come on, let's pray. Father in heaven, we want to share Jesus with power, spirit-given power. We want your church to be on the very front lines of sharing Christ and hope and salvation. We want to make ourselves available to you. Friend, is that your desire? Lord, I'm available to you. If that's your prayer, would you raise your hand? You don't need to know what you'll do, how you'll do it, who you'll share with. Lord, I'm available. That's the first step. I give my heart to you so you can use me to share Jesus with someone else somehow. Might be a book, might be a tract, might be a study, might be an invitation, might be a conversation, a loaf of bread, a Bible study. Lord, you know, but give your church special grace so that we can race to the finish line as Jesus returns and take the gospel to earth's remotest bounds. There's someone we're burdened for now, thinking of that person, praying for that person right now. Lord, break through to that heart. We love you and we thank you. Thank you for this time together. Give us grace, Lord, to share your word and see others change for eternity. In Jesus' name, amen.